comes jumping off my Chinese house. Two ducks in my spyglass, furry as a mouse. It's a sweet nature, a sweet nature thing. It's a sweet nature, a sweet nature thing. It's a mighty fine, Welcome to Yarns at Yin Hu, a podcast about the fiber arts and other post-apocalyptic skills. Episode 197, A Gentle Armor. Monday, May 28th, 2018. I'm your host, Sarah. You can find me on social media as Sarah Pomegranate. The Yarns at Yin Hu podcast has a Facebook page and it's available on iTunes. Each time I record an episode, I include show notes, photographs, and links to things I talk about on my website, yarnsatyinhu.com. Today's episode features the following segments the back porch, the front porch, ever-expanding skill set, and so forth. One of the ways that I cover the expenses of hosting this podcast is through sales of knitting patterns on Ravelry. My latest release is called Humble Bee. It's a sock pattern with a beautiful and easy-to-execute cable pattern that creates the look of little bees flying up the legs of your socks. It also has a really interesting heel flap, heel turn, and double gusset, um, and some features that help you with really great sock fit. I am using part of the proceeds uh, from this pattern to support honeybee agriculture through Heifer International, and so far, pattern sales have helped us to provide 10 beehives to agrarian families. Thank you so much for your purchases, and I hope you consider Humble Bee if you're thinking of knitting a pair of socks anytime in the near future. On the back porch is Iris, a beautiful lace shrug designed by Melody Hoffman. Emily of Fibertown and I are hosting and continue to host a knit along for this beautiful, versatile garment, and that extends until July 5th, so you still have plenty of time to complete or even get started on an iris. Once I started working on iris, I started thinking about all of the ways that I could wear it all of the ways I could use it in my wardrobe, and I just became more and more motivated to complete it, and so I did. Iris is knit as a lace panel. You provisionally cast on, knit one side of the panel, then pick up stitches and knit the other side. So then you have live stitches along both sides. You seam the ends a little bit with Kitchener Stitch to create armholes, and then you finish off both the armholes and the body of the garment with a little bit of garter ribbing or garter ridges. 
And so you have this little, it's a little jacket, kind of like a cocoon shaped jacket. I knit mine in beautiful blacker yarns, Samite, which is a wool silk blend. I chose the color Peacock's Neck, which is a lovely blue. And I think that will work with a lot of pieces in my wardrobe and be really versatile. Many of my willow tanks have a chambray or um, like a blue gauze back. So the front may have a print or be embroidered, but the back is actually a different fabric. And so I think the denim color and then the blue of this iris shrug will work nicely together. I used US size four needles. I did not swatch for this project. I've knit quite a bit with Samite yarn and I know I like the look of the fabric on US fours. Also, it didn't seem like gauge was essential. I mean, you would want to be close because it's something you're going to put on, but it's not a fitted sweater or something like that. So I just threw caution to the wind and did not swatch. I completed 12 lace repeats for each side of this long panel, and that resulted in a total of about 34 inches, 17 inches per side, which is between the small and the medium that Melody mentioned. Um, the depth or the, the width of this panel that I was knitting was not quite as wide as what was specified. So in a way, I wish I had added uh, an extra stitch or two to the border of this lace panel, especially since I made the decision, I think the very good decision to slip the first stitch on each side because I read the pattern ahead of time and understood that finishing the shrug meant picking up a lot of stitches all the way around the edge. And I thought the slip stitches would make picking up much easier and it did. But I also wish that I had added a stitch or two maybe to compensate for that slipped stitch on each edge. So if I were to knit it again, and it's possible, um, I think I would do a few things differently. And I have put all of these modifications in my um, project notes on Ravelry. I do that for almost everything that I knit. I do keep pretty complete uh, project notes. So if you're ever curious, you should check out my Ravelry page to see what I've written there. So I very happily knit on the lace for this pattern. I think that's the most appealing, attractive aspect of this knit was the beautiful lace. It's a 22 stitch repeat. So it's a very slow and meditative knit. I wouldn't say that I memorized the pattern, but I just felt very comfortable. I rarely made an error on this lace knitting because it just seemed to flow so nicely from one pattern row to the next. Then I kitchenered the armholes and did some garter ridge to close the sleeves. I really like the garter ridge as a complement to the lace. I think it's nice and it's a nice 
sturdy way to finish off the sleeves and the hem. Melody recommends this very interesting pearl stitch bind off and I like it a lot but I like the look of it more after a knit row than after a pearl row. So I added an additional knit row or knit round I guess I should say um, before I bound off um, for both the sleeves and for the body of the piece. When I had my shrug all finished, I steamed it and I started wearing it proudly. And I felt like it was falling off my shoulders a little bit. And so I decided to rip out the bind off and to take a few more de decreases, but only across one half of the garment. Melody designed this so it's like a very carefree piece that you can just chuck it on. There's no top or bottom. You just put it on. Um, but for me, I wanted a little more fit around the shoulder area, but I didn't want to pull in the bottom of the piece anymore because I really liked the back, all that lace showing and the beautiful garter ridge showing. So I just did some additional decreases around the top half of the piece and then I used some contrasting thread, some contrasting yarn, just to make a little detail on the inside um, neck so that I can see which way to put it on. It's almost like having a little tag inside your clothing and so I can see which way is up when I put it on. To me, this creates a more secure fit of the garment over my shoulders. I had family over yesterday for a porch picnic and I wore this shrug and I was moving, I was cooking, I was bringing things out to the grill, I was getting people drinks and I did not tug at this to fix it, which to me means that it's a nice, comfortable, secure fit. I really hesitated to do it because it took me about two hours to rip out the bind off, put everything on my needles, do these decreases and finish the shrug again. But I went through with it because I love it so much and I can see so many applications for it in my wardrobe that I wanted it to be a really nice secure fit. So once again, that's Iris. It's a shrug designed by Melody Hoffman. She designed it and I knit it in Blacker Yarns Samite, but you could knit this in any fingering or light fingering weight yarn. Something with a bit of silk or maybe a bit of linen in the content would really be nice um, for the drape and for the beautiful lace and also just for wearing in warm weather. It's sort of like a warm weather garment. And you can join in all the fun and the prizes that are on offer by taking a look at the Ravelry threads for this Iris Cowl on the Yarns at Yinhu Ravelry page and also on the Fibertown page. While I was working on the iris, I was thinking, of course, about what would be next on my needles. And there are quite a few really interesting things accumulating in my queue. 
some interesting summer tops. There's another top called Iris that really caught my attention by Ririco. It's like a beautiful drapey tank top. That was a contender as well as uh, a, a knit shirt called Salty Blue by Katrin Snyder. I think it has stripes on it, but it can be done in a plain color. That also looked very appealing. And for a long time since knitting one of Michio's patterns from a little collection last spring, I actually knit two of them, I've been looking over Kagaru or Kagaru, which is a long drapey style tank. And all of these were possibilities, but I initially settled on a design that is throw it over your shoulders and an open front. It's not a shrug, but it's similar in terms of what it does as a wardrobe piece. And that is Bryce, a little open front cardigan designed by Hannah Fettig for Quince and Company. It was designed with Quince and Company Sparrow, which is a linen yarn. It's a nice, lightweight, sort of warm weather cardigan. And so I settled on that one because of its versatility. I will still keep the others in my queue because I love them and I would like to knit them. Uh, but right now, I think this piece makes the most sense. I am knitting it in wool. It's a very lightweight fingering wool from Swan's Island. It's dyed in the fig colorway, which is this beautiful pinky purple color. I am alternating skeins because there's quite a bit of variation in this yarn and I am not sure that the skeins are perfectly matched. I purchased them on a D-stash several years ago. So they've been in stash and I'm committed to using some stashed yarn at the moment and seeing if I can really knit up these things from my stash that I acquired. And this has great yardage. Two skeins have really excellent yardage. So I am going to continue working on that uh, sweater by Hannah Fettig. Um, unlike the featherweight, which a lot of people complain doesn't stay on, this has a lot more shaping in, in the shoulders. And so I feel like it's going to be a nice, secure piece. Um, I think it will take a while. I'm knitting on US 4s. It's a very light fingering weight yarn. Um, it could be a bit of a slog because, of course, it's not knit in the round because it's a cardigan. So it could take a while, but so far I'm really enjoying the knit. I'm really enjoying the beautiful fig color of this yarn. And it is a good knit for a lot of situations. So I feel like I can take it on the go and still get a lot done. That is Bryce by Hannah Fettig, and I'm knitting it in Swan's Island fingering. I didn't mention at the top of this episode that there would be a yarn lover at large segment, but there needs to be. Since I haven't recorded in a while, and early in the month of May, I traveled to the Maryland Sheep and Wool Festival for this Saturday of the event, which is what I usually do. I take a bus 
down just for the day, but this time the bus was a lot more fun because I went with people I knew. Hope of Hope's favorite things and some fellow customers at Hope's shop, Robin and Amber. Robin even came back with a bunny on the bus. So it was a lot of fun. And once I arrived, of course, I palled around with Emily of Fibertown. And it was lovely to see also Jaime, her husband, and Sarah Flanus, who I didn't expect to see, but um, she ended up being there with her family. So that was awesome. And we had a great conversation around midday with Heather01851. Heather zip code. Never sure if I get that right. But she joined us sitting around in chairs under the trees for a while and hung out. And that was really awesome. So it was, it's never enough time. It's never enough time. Because the bus is always late and we leave early. But it was great to visit and to shop. And I made a few purchases. One is my tradition to get some hobbledehoy Batlings, and I did. I got a little set of batlings in the pebble colorway, and I will be spinning those with my meditative spindling over the course of the year. And I think these are the kind of colors that I can also add to a little bit. So, in the end, I might be able to get a blend uh, by adding a few additional things in. So, I picked up my hobbledehoy batlings, and then I also had my eye on some really beautiful core spun fiber necklaces by Ann Choi. And we stopped at Ann Choi's booth. She has some really beautiful things. Um, but I was able to pick out some fiber uh, core spun necklaces with, I'm not sure what, if they're coils, cocoons. They're just really lovely in some colors that aren't my usual colors, but I think they will stand out against fabrics that I wear. And um, that was a really great purchase, something that I have been looking forward to for a while. And then unexpectedly, Sarah started getting really interested in some textiles in the, the Wild Fibers booth. And these were beautiful Kantha stoles. And it didn't take very long before Sarah, Emily, and I were pawing through all of the offerings of these beautiful embroidered stoles at this booth, and we each walked away with one because they were just so special and interesting and wonderful. Since the festival, I've done an itty-bitty bit of research on this notion of kantha, so it's K-A-N-T-H-A. Kantha is a method of embroidery that employs worn out saris or scraps of saris stacked together and then embroidered through with usually a running stitch, although sometimes there can be more decorative elements, but it's usually a series of running stitches that stitches all of the layers of sari together and creates a kind of design. Now, the ones that were available at this Wild Fibers booth were all two pieces of sari silk, sometimes patched, sometimes not, but it was just two layers thick and embroidered through. But in the Kantra tradition, 
you might have as many as six layers of sari stacked together and you would put the most worn or the most soiled in the center and your your cleanest, best quality textiles on the outside. And this is the way you would sort of layer up to make something like a blanket or a shawl or something to keep you warm or bedding uh, by recycling these these saris. And so the embroidery on them is is quite, you know, outlandish in some ways because it's like vibrant color threads, things that you wouldn't necessarily expect going together, but the overall effect is just stunning and unusual and really, really beautiful. So we, I just kept looking at them and looking at them and I had a really hard time deciding. There were some textiles that I really liked the color and the patterning on the fabric, but ultimately I went for something where I liked the feel of the silk. I picked sort of the softest, drapiest silk one, which has one side that's sort of an orange leaning pink and another side that's a pretty bright turquoise. They are not my usual colors, but I think the way I will wear this stole is um, in sort of dressy situations, like with a black dress, and I think the bright colors will be just fine. Someday, if I'm very, very adventurous, it might be possible to cut into one and actually use it as fabric to make a garment because they're quite large. They're very large, wide panels. Uh, So you could maybe cut something out of it if you could brace yourself to cut into it with the scissors. Uh, But in the meantime, it will just serve as an accessory. So we each bought very, very different looks with the same Kantha tradition. It was a surprise purchase, a really lovely thing to bring home, and something that I think I will get a lot of use out of, especially over the summer months. Ever-expanding skill set. I've been cooking with rhubarb this month because my mother has a really excellent patch and a willingness to share. I took home a big bunch of rhubarb after visiting her on Mother's Day. And then yesterday she came up for a porch picnic for Memorial Day weekend and brought some more so I can do a little more experimentation. I started by making a rhubarb dessert in my cast iron skillet. I've made this recipe before. It's a really wonderful moist cake made with oatmeal, not too sweet. And you can do it with all kinds of fruits. In the summer, I also like to do it with peaches, but it's rhubarb and ginger, some brown sugar on the bottom of the pan, and then a very quick and easy batter on the top. And the whole thing goes right into the oven in the cast iron skillet, and then you invert it. This time I enlisted the help of Samuel to create a beautiful design with the rhubarb. I've been seeing on Instagram a lot of posts of folks doing really amazing things by arranging their rhubarb in a pattern, almost like quilting patterns. And then when you invert the dish, it is like a wonderful surprise. 
And so he did a really great job with a quilted pattern on the bottom of the cast iron skillet. And then we were both really proud when it was inverted and the whole thing came out so beautifully. Then on the way to work, I was listening to a back episode of my favorite audio podcast about food and culture, Good Food from KCRW, and the host, Evan Kleiman, was interviewing an author, Tinky Weisblatt, who's just written a book called Love, Laughter, and Rhubarb. They were talking about all of the usual applications of rhubarb in pies and cakes. In fact, rhubarb is sometimes referred to people even still as pie plant, not rhubarb, because the only thing ever you would think to do with it is put it in a pie with a lot of sugar. So Evan Kleiman was asking about savory ways that you could use rhubarb, and she mentioned rhubarb pizza. And I almost had to pull over. I was like, please tell me all about this. So as soon as I got home, I made it. And what I did was I caramelized onions in my cast iron skillet. And it takes about 30 minutes to caramelize onions. So for the first 15, I just had the onions in some bacon fat to get them nicely caramelized. And then for the next 10, I added just chopped rhubarb, which breaks apart quite quickly. So the onions need a lot longer than the rhubarb does. And then I added for the last five minutes, I added a few other things to sort of amp up the umami flavor. I added some fig paste and some red like cider reduction. You could add maybe some miso paste or, um, I don't know, a bouillon cube or something like that to just uh, amp up that, that flavor. And so rhubarb usually takes sugar to break down that tartness in desserts. But in savory applications, you can use the sugar of the caramelized onion in place of that sugar. So the two things kind of balance each other out. And the consistency when you're done cooking all of that down is somewhat like a very thick tomato sauce that you would put on the top of a pizza. So the color and consistency is amazingly similar. And then I just put some shredded mozzarella cheese on top of that. And then I Samuel was a little hesitant about the idea of rhubarb pizza, so I tried to overcome some of that hesitation by putting a really healthy amount of bacon on top of the pizza and also some chiffonade of of Swiss chard. I'm growing Swiss chard in one of my garden pots because I love just snipping off the leaves and kind of using it as an herb. It's not enough to make a, a big amount, but it's nice to just be able to pinch leaves off and use them almost like a, I don't know, like, like you would an herb. And so we made these pizzas and it was really delicious. The, there was quite a bit of like umami, um, sweet, tart, unctuous kind of mouthfeel with that caramelized rhubarb and onion. And it was a, It was really, really good. Samuel was impressed. um, And I think 
I could maybe consider other ways to use that same concoction or to doctor it up in different ways. Um, I've been thinking about it as maybe something to go with pork. I don't know. But that was a really great experiment. And then yesterday when my mom came, she brought a kind of rhubarb pie that we haven't had before. We always grew up with strawberry rhubarb pie. Strawberries and rhubarb are often available at the same time in the spring. And so it makes sense that they would be paired together in a pie. But the texture of cooked strawberries isn't really that fantastic. I think strawberries lose everything that's special about them when you cook them. And so a strawberry rhubarb pie isn't really my favorite thing. And so this pie my mom made was just perfect because it was just the rhubarb. It's a rhubarb cream or rhubarb custard pie. So it's her beautiful pie crust, always flaky to perfection, with a, quite a thin layer of eggy custard. It was a very eggy custard, dense. And then the rhubarb that had been coated with sugar. And the rhubarb kind of floats to the top in this pie. And then we garnished it with a healthy dollop of whipped cream and some fresh strawberries. And that was really the perfect combination of strawberries and rhubarb because each was shown off to advantage. The pie went over very well. We even had some guests who, I don't know that they would be really big fans of rhubarb and they happily ate everything up. So that was great. And I have some more rhubarb to continue experimentation I've seen some recipes for rhubarb in a ferment, and this is my year of fermentation, so I may may uh, endeavor to do something with fermenting rhubarb, but I've also thought about how to extract the juice of rhubarb to put in my water kefir, and that could be an interesting way to experiment with it. So I will fill you in when I record my next episode on what's been going on with rhubarb. And so forth. We are near the close of Me Made May, and it's been a month of celebration for makers to post some photos or some stories or... Um, some indication of the journey that they've made in making their own clothes or thrifting and salvaging, mending, over-dyeing, in some way fashioning things that they wear. I love this month. I really love to see all of the photographs and to see where inspiration comes from and the different ways people participate in making. And more than ever this year, I've also decided to take part in it by taking photographs of myself wearing some of the clothes that I've made. And this has been a really difficult undertaking. And I think Me Made May can get a lot of criticism because it can at first appear that those who post may be showing off or... I don't know, in some ways that the exposure is a kind of a brag. 
I don't know how it is for anyone else who's photographing themselves head to toe in things that they've made, but I have found it extremely difficult and awkward and I've needed a lot of courage to take those photos. Um, I've encountered some setbacks with um, my reconstruction, my reconstructive surgery this month. And so I felt self-conscious and awkward and uncomfortable. And one of the reasons that I persisted with taking the photographs is that my handmade wardrobe has really been sustaining me almost like a suit of armor through a period when I feel pretty fragile. And I couldn't be more pleased that I've invested my time and my money in making things for myself to wear. It's been a really deep source of comfort for me. And so taking the photographs and really honoring that making and being able also to tag and refer to the people who have inspired me, patterns I've loved, where I've purchased things, friends who have helped me um, or given me advice about how to make things. It's a way of really honoring all of that in making those posts. And so while it hasn't been every day, it's been pretty consistent throughout the month of May on my Instagram feed that I've posted some photographs of these things that I've been talking about on the podcast, but I haven't necessarily shown myself wearing them. And I I do feel proud of them and really happy to share them with you, but it wasn't easy. Uh, One of the things that helped me a lot with Me Made May this month is doing a real assessment of my handmade wardrobe. A while back, Emily of the Fibertown podcast suggested a audio podcast on sewing from two Canadian gals. It's called Love to Sew. And I started with the Level Up episode, which is just where I am because it was all about, so you've been sewing for a while and now what are the ways that you can continue to challenge yourself on this journey? It was really interesting. And after loving that episode, I've gone back to listen to some back episodes. And one of the things that I learned from that podcast was to take really take stock in what you've made as a way to think about how to move forward. And so this spring, when I changed my closet over, I have very small amount of closet space that Samuel and I designed for ourselves in our home. And I have regularly done sort of like a spring-summer changeover and a fall-winter changeover. And this time, when I pulled the totes out, and there are fewer and fewer plastic bins every time I do this, which is really a source of pride as well, I didn't put away anything that I had made. If I had made it, it stayed in my closet even if it was out of season, so to speak, like my, my let Lopi sweater stayed in the closet uh, and some of my winter dresses, they stayed so that I could really see everything that I've made all at once and assess it. And then I could see what pieces 
of commercially made things are still in my wardrobe that I'm using a lot. And that's a direction that I want to be heading with my making. Another thing that made this very visible to me is I decided to treat myself to those really nice um, kind of velour coated hangers only for things that I have made for myself. So I invested in quite a few of them and I've hung every woven garment uh, and my skirts and everything. I bought some with clips on them. I've hung up everything that I've made on the really nice hangers so I can see at a glance the ratio of me made clothes versus commercially made and thrifted clothing. And it's allowed me to see where the gaps, where the holes are in my wardrobe. And one of those gaps is things to chuck over sleeveless tops. I have a number of commercially made little sweaters and things that I've bought over the years that I use frequently throughout the spring and summer. They're getting old, they're getting kind of ratty, and I think it's time for me in my making to start replacing some of those with things that I have made. Uh, So there are a couple of things that fit that bill. One is these little Alabama Channon bolero tops that I've been making. They're quick and easy, and I think I currently have three of them and plans for another one. And that's a great set of sleeves with a little back. It's super cropped. It just fits, barely fits over the bust. It doesn't fit over the bust, but it comes down um, to just under the arm and covers your arms. They're stretchy because they're made out of knit and really versatile. So that's one way. This iris shrug is another item that sort of fits in that niche And then this little open front cardigan by Hannah Fettig will be another such item. So that's one thing that I'm working on. Uh, Two others are trousers. I have not made any pants for myself aside from pajama bottoms. So it's long been in um, my thoughts to make pants and trousers Leggings are something I wear quite a bit, and I have not yet endeavored to make my own leggings, so that's a possibility. There's also a beautiful pair of stride trousers in the Merchant and Mills workbook that I've thought about for a long time, so it could be time for those. Jeans will be the final frontier of my making, I feel. I'm not there yet, but someday. And then the other hole in my wardrobe, something I wear a lot, but I have not endeavored to make for myself, is a jacket or blazer. In the cooler months, I often throw on a lightweight blazer. I have quite a few fully lined corduroy blazers. Some of them are starting to wear quite a bit, uh, wear out. Uh, And that's something I really should try to make for myself. Part of my hesitation has been that I haven't come upon a design that I love. Um, There's a Joe ready to sew version that I think is pretty close to some things that I wear. There's also the Haramir jacket in the Merchant and Mills workbook. 
it's way oversized, but I think maybe I could scale it down a little bit. And I have some fabric that I think would work well for that jacket. It's not fully lined, but the sleeves are lined and then the back neck is lined and it's finished off on the inside, even though it isn't lined. That's a possibility. And there's also a kimono jacket design in a recent issue of Making. So those are the, the shrug, cardigan, the um, trousers, and jacket. Those are three directions where I can really see my making going over the course of the next year. I've made a lot of dresses. I love to make dresses. I love the dresses in my wardrobe, but I feel like I need to work on some other items. Since looking very carefully at all of the things I've made and the holes in my wardrobe, I feel a lot more calm and directed in my making. I feel like when I get turned on to doing something, I'm kind of in a frenzy. I have a lot of anxiety about it, like just wanting to make things and get things done and start on the next project and the next project. And now that it's been a while since I've been working on a mostly handmade wardrobe, I feel a lot calmer. And I also feel like I better understand the benefits of a mostly handmade wardrobe. I've been talking with a few podcaster friends about this whole phenomenon and someone brought up this idea of a gentle armor and we determined that it's a title of a collection of shawls by Sylvia McFadden. But I think a gentle armor is a really great metaphor for a handmade wardrobe because it's a way that I have of caring for myself and thinking carefully about what I buy, where I source my things, and the way I'm always engaging to do better and better at that in terms of sustainability and kindness to the earth and using up everything I have instead of just transferring buying clothing into buying textiles, like transferring that same consumerism over into another area. And I feel like in the past six months, I've sort of been calming down about that. And one of the things that's really helped me was to look at everything that I've made all together at once. I was very dismissive of this idea when I first heard it. And so part of my reason of sharing this story is to encourage you if you might feel dismissive about it, like, why would I do that? Why? It's so much effort to like get all this stuff out just to look at it. I know what I've made. That's what I was thinking. But I, I really did uh, have some important realizations by going through this process and it's brought me to a better understanding about my making and a more refreshed outlook on my making for the future. So to everyone out there who's been celebrating Me Made May, congratulations. Uh, thank you for all of your posts, which are such a delight to look at and learn from. 
And I look forward to a year of making and another month of celebration with you next year based on all the inspiration that I've been been gathering up over the course of May. Hey, cars jumping off my Chinese house. Two ducks in my spyglass, furry as a mouse. It's a sweet nature, a sweet nature thing. It's a sweet nature, a sweet nature thing. It's a mighty fine. It's a mighty fine, a mighty fine nature thing. Leaves lay down like a lady, waiting for a naked man. River bends like an elbow, turning stones to sand. It's a sweet nature, sweet nature thing. Thanks for listening. Music for this episode is so sweet. Music and lyrics by Samuel St. Thomas, performed by Bovine Social Club. 
Eat well and stay strong as you hone your post-apocalyptic skill set this week. Thank you.